Well, good morning again. I'm Derek. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you today. And we have, if you're brand new with us, you're, uh, you're catching us actually uh, pretty close to the beginning of a new series. We started the book of Ruth last week, and so we're in Ruth chapter 2 this week. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible, I believe. Joshua judges Ruth. If you're, you know, a Lyle Lovett fan, that may make it easier for you as well. Uh, But we are in the second chapter now of Ruth. And before I read Ruth 2, I I want to ask you this question. I want you to have this question in the back of your mind as I'm reading. What is kindness? How would you define kindness? Just keep that in the back of your mind as I read Ruth chapter 2 for us. Now, Naomi... It's also on the screen above my head if you'd like to follow along. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not even one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed through her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose again to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her, not, or let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from your bundles for her, and, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And she said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are, uh, we are grateful to come to your word this morning. Uh, we come as those who need to learn. We come as those who need to be changed. We come as those who need to sit under your authority. So Lord, in your graciousness, in your mercy, in your kindness, will you teach us? Will you show us who you are? And will you change our hearts? Lord, open our ears and our eyes soften our hearts that we may see you, that we may hear what you have to say, and that we might love you in return. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, You know, it's often said that uh, a picture paints a thousand words. And I asked you that question as we were reading, you know, what is kindness? What's the definition of kindness? And I could show you a picture for kindness, but there's not any really great pictures that describe kindness, plus We just read about a thousand words, so that's going to have to suffice. There's about 700 words there in Ruth 2, and actually in Ruth 2, we do get a beautiful picture, a description of what kindness is. Let me just kind of lay it out, the the, the definition we're going to use this morning. Here's how to think about biblical kindness. Kindness is acting above and beyond what is either expected or required especially towards somebody who's in need. It's an action more than a feeling. It's an activity more than a thought. And it's an action that goes above and beyond what is either expected or required of you, and usually towards somebody who has some sort of need. That could be a physical need, could be an emotional need, could be a relational need. And we actually see here in Ruth 2 that our main characters, our two main characters, Ruth and Boaz, are wonderful pictures of kindness for us. They describe for us, they, they play out, they act out this great description of kindness. So let's just dig into it a little bit this morning, and we'll start with Ruth. Where do we see kindness in Ruth's action and her activity? Well, we get most of it actually from reading what Boaz says about Ruth. Let me read to you again from verse 11. Boaz answered her, answered Ruth, saying, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother in your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. So first we see how Ruth has shown kindness to Naomi, her mother-in-law, by leaving her own place. Remember in Ruth 1, we heard that story of Naomi, who was in the land of Moab, her husband and her two sons die, and she's left with her two daughters-in-law. And one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, says to her, I'm going to cling to you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. I'm going to attach myself to you. She does that, of course, because she sees something in Israel's God that is lacking in the Moabite gods, but she is also acting in kindness to Naomi. When we left Naomi in chapter one, remember, she was devastated. She had been telling people, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter, because that's my life now. My life is bitterness. 
And here's Ruth when we open up chapter 2, caring for her bitter mother-in-law. Caring for her mother-in-law who is probably too seized up with grief or depression to even do anything. And Ruth is out here in the fields trying to earn a living, making some money or providing food for both she and Naomi when Naomi is desperate. There's probably even more, right? It sounds like even that Boaz is talking about a lot of things that Ruth has done over and over to show her kindness. In fact, it actually seems like Boaz is indicating that he has seen some glimpse of Ruth's character, a character that actually includes kindness in some way. You know, if you, if you flip over to Proverbs, you don't need to do this now, but at the end of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31, it's the last chapter in Proverbs, the second half of that proverb is, is kind of an ode to the godly woman. It's a proverb about a description of what a godly woman looks like. It's the thing that Israelite women were supposed to read and desire to be. It's the thing that Israelite men were supposed to read and desire to marry. And that uh, proverb starts this way. It says, um, an excellent woman who can find, or an excellent wife who can find, it's actually the same word, she is far more precious than jewels. An excellent woman. You know, that word in, in Hebrew is hail. It's actually the word that we find here to talk about who Boaz is. He's a worthy man. And in chapter 3, we'll see that same word used to describe who Ruth is. It's talking about the excellence, the worthiness of her character. And that character right now is on display in her kindness. It's being shown in the kindness that she actually puts forth in all of her relationships. And we see that kindness in her relationship with her mother-in-law. But you can see kindness actually at work, of course, in lots of relationships. In fact, kindness, we can say, is the glue. It's kind of the relational bonding agent for just about any relationship whether that's mother and mother-in-law, whether that's father and son, whether that's friend to friend, whether that's spouse to spouse. There's a guy, uh, a psychologist named John Gottman, pretty famous psychologist who's done a lot of work in kind of couples therapy, and he has uh, noticed a couple of really fascinating things. In fact, he has these pretty amazing skills of what he's done. He, he will counsel couples and do kind of uh, regular psychotherapy couples counseling with them, but he oftentimes will, will, ta- will videotape them. With, with their permission, he will videotape them, and he will go back and he'll watch those videotapes later, and he's developed this skill of being able to read facial features such that he can tell what's going on under the surface of a relationship even when he mutes the playback. And he can sit and watch what's going on in the relationship even without any sound, and he's looking for two really particular things. The first thing that he's looking for are signs of contempt. He's looking for facial cues that show signs of contempt between the couples because what he's realized is that contempt is the relationship killer. In fact, most of the times he's developed a a pretty highly accurate ability to predict predict just after he's seen a sign of contempt, the percentages are enormously high that that couple probably doesn't have much of a chance. The other thing that he looks for is a sign of kindness. And he reads it in their faces, and when he sees even just a glimpse of kindness from one spouse to the other, he knows, oh, these people have a chance. These people have a real chance. Because kindness is the bonding agent in relationships. 
It's the glue of a marriage. It's the glue of any kind of relationship. Of course, in a Christian marriage, the real glue is God's kindness, but the kindness that we enact upon one another is also, the, is also a bonding agent that keeps people together. Let's keep looking on at our next character in this story. It's Boaz. Boaz, as we have just said, is described with this very particular word in the first verse here of chapter 2. Let me read it again. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. That word worthy, again, Hail, there it's Gibor Hail. Uh, I'm sure all of you um, are familiar with that word. And uh, it's used in a lot of different kind of contexts, actually, throughout the Old Testament. It's actually pretty, um, pretty widely used word, and it can have a pretty broad range of meaning depending upon the context. So for instance, it can mean a mighty warrior, kind of a conquering hero if it's used in a battle context. So the conquering hero would come in from war and they would be called a worthy man, a worthy man of battle because he's conquered his enemies and people would call him a worthy man. Or it can be used maybe in somebody who's wealthy or has high social status, who has a lot of cultural power that person would be called a worthy man because they have this kind of gravitas, this weight because of their wealth. But it also has a third meaning, and that's the meaning that's in place here that doesn't have anything to do with battle or conquest or or, or war, and it doesn't have anything to do with wealth or social standing. It's the way that you would describe somebody who has a noble character. They would be a worthy person. Someone of high, noble character, somebody whose word actually means something, someone who has a reputation in the area, not for their wealth or for their ability, but simply for their character. And that character, as we will see played out here, just like Ruth's character, Boaz's character is saturated with kindness. A lot of that shows up in the way that he acts toward Ruth. We read in there that she goes out to glean in the fields. Now, maybe you read that and you thought, what in the world is happening there? What's gleaning? Well, here's a little quick background. In the Old Testament law, in Leviticus, and then reiterated in Deuteronomy, God says, okay, there's some very particular ways that I want my people to go about harvesting their fields. Once they've planted their fields, when it's harvest time, here's some particular things I want you to do. First of all, don't harvest the edges of the field. Leave those. Leave those kind of unharvested. Secondly, as you're going through and harvesting the rest of the field, like if some falls on the ground, don't pick it up. If you reach in to pull out some stuff, you know, and maybe you've missed a couple things, it's okay. Go ahead and go past it. Basically, God is saying, when you harvest, be kind of sloppy with the way that you're doing it. Now, why would God say that? Why would God tell his people to work in a way that's kind of sloppy? Well, there's a reason for it. It's because God was using the way that they were harvesting to care for the poor and the marginalized and the unprotected in their land. He says, this is the, you're going to harvest this way and leave some left over so that the foreigner, somebody who doesn't have a stake of land in your place, that the widow somebody who's unprotected by a husband's provision, that the orphan, someone who's unprotected by a parent's provision, can actually come and take the food and have something to eat so that they can survive. Embedded deep into God's law 
is his care for the weak, his care for the poor, his care for the marginalized, his care for the outsider, his care for the foreigner. And of course, what's supposed to happen always in God's law, supposed to happen in the Old Testament for Israel, is supposed to happen for us as well, is that God's requirements are not just supposed to shape our action, they are meant to shape our hearts. So that as we act according to God's word, as we act in ways that are kind, it's supposed to actually build kindness into our hearts. And that's exactly what's going on with Boaz here. Because Boaz is not just doing the law, he has really taken it into the heart level. And you can see that through a few different things. First of all, you see it in the way that he talks to Ruth. Remember what he says to Ruth. He says, okay, here's the thing. I want you to A, stay in my field. It was apparent that that not all of the field owners were as kind as Boaz. So he says, I want you to stay in my, don't go to some other field, stay in my field. Pick up the stuff, by the way, that I could be picking up and making money on. You pick it up, you take it, so that you'll be protected and cared for. And more than that, stay close to these women who are reaping, his workers. Stay close to them so that you can pick it up right there. It's almost like he's telling them, just join in kind of with the reaping that they're doing so that you'll get as much as you possibly can. And remember what he says separately to the men? He says, first of all, don't mess with her. Secondly, he says, let let her come and glean and don't reproach her. That word could mean a few things, but it probably means something like not only don't touch her, but enough with the cat calls too, right? So leave her alone and let her glean right up there with all of the reapers. In fact, he says, let her reach in and grab some out of the sheaves. And, and, then, and then every now and then, you know, after you've taken some and you've put it in your little basket, like just go in and grab a little handful in your basket and throw it down on the ground behind you so she can have more. He is intentionally saying, provide for her in an abundant way. And there's a great clue at the end of this. It's a little bit hidden because we don't understand these measurements, but we read at the end that she collected an ephah of barley. We don't really measure things in ephahs anymore and that she worked throughout the barley and the wheat harvest. Well, an ephah, the the way that they used to measure stuff in ancient times, actually made a lot more sense. They would kind of measure it by like how much a person could carry at the end of the day and how much a donkey could carry and that sort of thing. And an ephah is really just about the amount that a person could carry home from the field back into the city when they went home. So first of all, she went home that first day with about as much as she could carry, a lot of barley. And then we read that she worked there in Boaz's field throughout the rest of the barley and the wheat harvest. That's probably somewhere around two months, seven to eight weeks or so while that harvesting is being done. And if you start to do the math, what you realize is that what she, if she's there every day, what she is actually bringing home is probably just about enough to feed she and Naomi for the rest of the year. Boaz is being abundantly kind to her. He is pouring out his kindness in an incredible way. Remember our definition of kindness? It's above and beyond what is required, above and beyond what is expected to show kindness to someone who's in need. I don't know if you guys are familiar uh, with the uh, country artist named Walker Hayes. Uh, I, I was not. Actually, a friend pointed out Walker Hayes to me in this great story that lays behind him. He's got his kind of breakthrough song is a song called Craig. And there's a great story behind this song. I watched a couple of interviews with, with Walker Hayes this week, and, uh, and he tells the story of what's happening at the time. He's a, he's a struggling country artist at the time. 
He's living in Nashville. He's married, and at the time, his record deal falls through or, it's, or the contract is up. And it's also the second record contract that he lost. And to make it even worse, part of this kind of record deal was that there was a partnership with a local car dealership, and that car dealership had given he and his family a minivan to use for free as part of kind of, you know, he'd come in, he'd wave, he'd sign some things, he got to use the minivan. But when the record deal was up, guess what? The deal with the dealership is up as well. And so they drive over and take away the minivan right after Walker and his wife have their sixth child. So here's a guy who's got no job, six kids, and one car. And he said it was a pretty dark time. He started working at Costco just to, to kind of make ends meet and drinking a lot to numb the pain. And he said in the middle of this deep time when he said I was pretty, pretty deep into my alcoholism, his wife, who was a Christian, he said, I was not a Christian at the time. My wife was a Christian. She drug us to this little church in Nashville. And as we're there, he said, I, you know, she took me to this church I didn't want to be at. And as I'm walking into this church holding one of my six kids, this guy named Craig just kind of shows up and welcomes them. And he starts to be kind to them. Not just on Sunday mornings, but Craig and his wife invite the Hayes family over into their house. They serve them dinner. They, he said, you know, Craig, would, when he'd asked me, how you doing, it wasn't a rhetorical question. He actually wanted to know how I was doing. He starts showing up at his, uh, at, at his shows in these seedy little bars around Nashville just to support him. He starts showing up at his son's baseball games just, just to be a friend. And one day at one of those games, he shows up and he's got a set of keys and a title to his minivan. And he says, I want you to have this. We figured out how to kind of get ourselves another car that'll get us by for a little bit, but you got six kids and you need something to do. You need, a, you, need, you need a car that can actually put them all in it. And he gave him his van. And Walker Hayes says, I didn't know what to do. So to thank him, I wrote this song. I want you all to listen to the lyrics of this song called Craig. It's kind of written almost, almost like a rap. It's kind of rapid fire, so just... See if you can catch up. I met Craig at a church called Redeeming Grace. It's like he understood my I don't want to be here face. I felt out of place and I smelled like beer, but he just shook my hand and he said, I'm glad you're here. He says, we'll all be judged, but he was never judgmental. And even though my songs don't belong in no hymnal, he'd quote me my lyrics and slap me on the back, said, man, you've got a gift. How'd you write like that? Yeah, I know. He sounds cool, right? Not your typical kid from Sunday school, right? I still ain't figured out church yet, but Craig, I get. Now, he can't walk on water or turn the Napa Valley red, but he just might be tight with a man that did. Now, he's not the light of the world, but I wish that mine was as bright as his. Yeah, he just might be tight with a man that is. When you lose a record deal, yeah, all the perks fade fast. The dealership said, we're going to need to get that minivan back. So we're down to one car and broke as I felt, my wife and six kids and only five seatbelts. I needed help, but I couldn't admit I was struggling. I said, Craig, it's all good, but he knew it all wasn't. A, hey, man, I'm praying for you would have been sufficient, but nah, he took roadside assistance to a whole other level. To sacrificial heights, showed up at the ballpark after my son's game one night in two cars with his wife, Laura, watching from the other. I said, what in the world are y'all doing here, brother? He just laughed inside that old Chrysler town and country van with the keys and a title and a pen in his hand. 
said, man, all you got to do is sign and it's yours. I said, no way. But he wouldn't take no for an answer. He said, please do. Somebody did this for me once. Just let me do it for you. We argued about it for a little while, and then I teared up, and Craig smiled. Yeah, I know, he sounds cool, right? Not your typical kid from Sunday school, right? Now, he can't walk on water or turn the Napa Valley red, but he might just be tight with a man that did. Now, he's not the light of the world, but I wish mine was as bright as his. Yeah, he just might be tight with a man that is. My pride was way too ashamed to be adequately grateful at the moment, but I signed the dotted line, and I drove the kids home. And when the cop pulled up beside us at the light, they didn't have to duck, because thanks to Craig, they were all buckled up. Walker Hayes says, you know, even when I wrote that song, he's like, I'm not sure if I was a Christian or not. Now he is a deeply committed Christian. He says that his main goal in life is to point to the kindness of God as Craig pointed it to him. And it brings up another pretty amazing dynamic, I think, that we see at play in this passage. And that's that God actually uses the kindness of his people to reveal his kindness to us. There's something fascinating here at the end of this passage. I want to read it again. It's in in verse 20. This is in what Naomi says to Ruth. Listen to this. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, talking about Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That word kindness is that great Hebrew word hesed that we talked about last week. But the way that that is written actually in Hebrew is strange. It's kind of vague. It's hard to know what the subject of the verb is. Like, who's the subject of his kindness? Is it Boaz or is it the Lord? Well, the answer is yes. Is Ruth's kindness toward Naomi kindness from Ruth or kindness from the Lord? Yes. Was Craig being kind to Walker, or was the Lord being kind to Walker? Yes. That is the way that God works. He works through the actions of his people to show his kindness, his goodness, his glory. He can do it any way he wants. Sometimes he does. But most of the time, we get to see God's kindness through the kindness of others. So I just want to kind of end with a couple of questions here. Simple application questions. And the first is this. Where in your life have you seen God's kindness toward you displayed in the kindness of someone else? Is there a Craig in your life who's given you something that you needed and would never ask for? Is there a a Ruth in your life who's taken up the job of providing when you were unable Is there a Boaz in your life who's protected you, who's abundantly provided for you? Where have you seen God's kindness? You may even want to write some of those things down this afternoon because it's it's helpful to recall, to remember those things. And then the second question is this, where is God opening up doors for us to show his kindness to someone else? Where is God opening opportunities for him to use you to show his kindness to the people around you. Because, friends, this is how the world comes to know who the Lord is, is that we, in our activity, display 
the one who is perfectly kind. Because, of course, Jesus is the one who fulfills this perfectly, isn't he? He is, the word, he is the one whose kindness is everlasting. He is the one whose provision is so much, much more abundant even than Boaz's. He is the one who has kept the law more perfectly than Boaz. He is the one who has provided in his activity and in his work better than Ruth does for Naomi. He's the one who has given a gift of not just work or not just some barley or some food and not even just a minivan, but of his own life so that we might be saved from our sins. Jesus is the true, worthy man, not because of his accomplishments in battle or because of his wealth, even though, of course, we know Jesus is the king who conquers, and he is the one who owns a thousand hills, but his worthiness comes from his kindness, his humble kindness to give us himself. Friends, this is where the power for our kindness comes. Let's pray that the Lord would enable us to depend on him and to work in his name even now and forevermore. We pray with me. Father in heaven, your covenant faithfulness, your loving kindness, your mercy, your goodness, your chesed, it is what we depend on, it is what we live on. So Lord, will you Will you enable us to feed on that kindness so that we might pour ourselves out in kindness to others? We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.